Hello, and welcome to the 3D Meetup podcast. For this episode, we sat down to talk with Dan Ring. Dan is based in Dublin, and he's the head of research at Foundry. He was nice enough to come out and chat to us about some of the projects and technology he's worked on in Foundry, and give us some insight into the future of our industry by sharing some of the things he's working on right now. I will warn you, there's a Game of Thrones spoiler right in the middle of this episode, but I'll let you know when it's coming and you'll be able to skip it. It was great chatting to Dan, and I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I did. So, Dan Ring, thanks for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having me. It's, I'm really happy to be here. I'm, uh, like I said to you already before, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, I'm glad to have you on. Really glad to have you on. Um, so, yeah, you are head of R&D in Foundry, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about that in a second. I'm really excited to talk to you about that. But first, I wanted to get to know you and how you got into the 3D kind of realm, because it's not what you studied in college, is it? It's, it's, I suppose it's, it's in the ballpark. Um, yeah. So um, at the very beginning, I suppose, going back, um, I loved film when I was younger. So uh, teenage years and transition year. And I suppose this is one of the, the, the reasons why people and kids should do transition years. They kind of figure out what you're into and you get to kind of explore things. And um, myself, and my friends used to love making films and it was just, you know, getting a camcorder and like one friend would write a script, one friend would like direct things. Um, and I realized that I was really in- interested in like kind of the, either the, the both the production side of things, like just getting stuff together, but also uh, the final like picture. So the look and feel of, of the picture. And so I realized like I had we had like an old like Pentium 4 machine and, uh, you know, I've bought a, a kind of video capture card and hooked the, the TV VCR up to it. And I loved all, everything about capturing the footage off the VHS tape and putting it into the computer and then tinkering around with it in After Effects, actually in Premiere. And uh, so I really liked messing with pixels and like kind of all the stuff of like making sure that the picture looked nice. And uh, I kind of just stuck with that. So I had a, uh, worked a couple of jobs in web design through college. So uh, Media One, Metronet. Um, and then from there, I kind of got into programming. And then I realized actually using programming, you can start tinkering with pixels. So uh, Macromedia Flash at the, at the time and like making graphics, do do swimming things. And, and then... Um, yeah, from then I uh, did um, electronic engineering or computer engineering in college. And then from there, my final year project was was with uh, a guy called uh, Professor Anil Kokram of uh, Trinity. And he was actually one of the guys who originally did the one uh, the work on the, the bullet time as a sequence of the matrix, wow. like the kind of the, the motion estimation kind of algorithms behind the bullet time, like, like making sure, like interpolating frames so that you get a kind of a smooth sequence. Um, and so I did a final year project with him and then from there, after that, I did a PhD kind of in, in that, in electronic engineering. So signal processing, um, and actually my first project was actually medical anatomy related. I was actually filming, uh, like cadaver dissections in the Royal, with the Royal College of Surgeons. And, uh, that was that was both amazing and super creepy. Mm. Um, it's amazing how quickly you get used to just filming and being used to kind of like kind of desensitize you know, yeah exactly yeah yeah but it was kind of again that was all about sort of like once you kind of move past the kind of material and uh, you know you you're really about making sure that the picture is good for the audience and making sure that the things look good and um so that was actually trying to assist with um learning aids for um kind of uh, for med- med- medical students who might not be able to have access to cadavers <laughs> for whatever reason and uh yeah, then from there I did a I finished PhD and um, 
that was that was my PhD was in sort of understanding uh, sequences, video. So can you break down the the kind of thesis was about breaking down video into its sort of constituent parts and then seeing if you could use those parts to kind of derive a, a deeper understanding. So, for example, um, uh, one thing was about like, could you uh, from sort of tennis coaching video, could you automatically parse the video to highlight the extract the interesting bits? Uh, other bit was the, uh, the the cadaver dissection that I mentioned of tracking kind of um, anatomical dissection t- tools uh, to kind of highlight certain bits. Like, could you if a if the surgeon tapped on a, a part, could it automatically re- recognize that that was trying? It was trying to say this is a thing that you need to look at and then automatically highlight it. Uh, basically, again, because you might have, um, you know, 30 something hours of dissection videos and actually editing that is super hard. And unless you're trained in medicine, you actually don't know what bits are to, to, uh, are interesting. And so, yeah, that was kind of the kind of bulk of the, the PhD. And then after that, I did uh, of a kind of a year postdoc with uh, with Foundry uh, on a, a funded uh, research project and um, so with Foundry and the University of Surrey. And it was all kind of about like how you could make um, kind of better post-production tools uh, within Nuke and you know, like uh, matting segmentation. So like isolating parts of the image, so on tracking stuff. So all this, the same sort of stuff that I've, I've been doing already. And then after that, then, yeah, joined the foundry. And that was about that was about nine years ago. Um, that was exactly nearly exactly nine years ago. And uh, yeah, I've been there ever since. So joined the research team. And my kind of focus and passion has still been about, um, yeah, making pictures better. And thankfully, like in in Foundry, in Nuke is the kind of our main flagship product. Um, I've a lot of my work has been around kind of uh, tracking. So uh, 2D tracker, camera tracker, uh, smart vectors, if anyone's familiar with those. Um, and yeah, and generally just sort of upkeep and kind of improvements of various tools within Nuke. And then lately, it's more about, um, so... Uh, research team. Um, so I, I, I lead um, several sub teams within the research team. There's about 15 of us, I suppose. And uh, yeah, it, it's the same. It's like I'm, I think I'm still doing the same thing that I've I've been doing since I've been 15. It's all about sort of making better images, uh, tools for artists to make better images. So making the the digital paintbrushes and getting those in the hands of the right people to to help you know create all of those masterpieces that you see on the silver screen and TV, Netflix, and everywhere. Yeah, amazing! Wow, that's that's quite a journey. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. no, it's, bit of a whistle stop. But no, yeah. it's great, um, and it's cool to see how it kind of evolved into doing stuff in Nuke, and that 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 sort of using using technology to do all of the kind of stuff that Nuke does. Do you have a favorite project that you've worked on in uh, Foundry? Um, I have a, I've a good few projects that I really liked working on. Um, the um, I, I mean the. The one that I'm sort of like very happy about has been the the smart vector tool, which is um, uh, so if no one's familiar with it, it's um, it's basically using uh, motion vectors, so understanding kind of how pixels move between frames, and how how things move within the frames, and allowing you to kind of apply edits on one frame and then have them automatically propagate to all other frames in video. So it's um, it's a really neat tool for kind of assisting with sort of. Uh, you know, kind of like I mean, a lot of people say it's sort of the uh, described as the uh, the blood and tattoo uh, and grit <laughs> tool, where like if you want to like track something onto somebody's face, yeah. you like paint a tattoo or something on their face, and then it automatically follows through through the face or through the through the shot. Yeah, and so that's been kind of um, 
it's been kind of a really nice project where it kind of built on a lot of the work that um, kind of both my, my boss, uh, Professor Cochrane, um, and a whole bunch of other people had been had done leading up to this. So it's it was nice to kind of build on on sort of fifteen to twenty years of work and actually make something new and, and give it out to the world. And um, it seems to be pretty popular. People seem to, to like it quite a lot. Um, but but I think my actual favorite one was. Um, um, it was actually we made an update to the the regular two D point tracker. So, um, if uh, again, if, if anyone's listening at home and isn't familiar with it, it's, um, it's sort of again you you pick a point on an, on an image on a, on a in, the, in a in a frame of video, and the, the tracker will basically follow that point through through the video. And you use this for lots of compositing tasks. It's one of the the bread and butter tools that you nearly you nearly have to use for every shot, and. Um, we got a lot of reports saying that actually it's just a bit crap and it was just, it just wasn't working. And I just, um, and this is sort of around the time before Nuke uh, 7 released, I think. And uh, it was just, it, it just wasn't good at capturing sub-pixel motion. And uh, so I was like, all right, great. Like naive Dan jumped on. I was like, yeah, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to definitely fix this. And started going, going into it and realized like I'd make some changes to it. And there was some easy places where I could say, oh yeah, it wasn't working here. I can, I can fix it here and made some changes. Um, but every time we sort of sent it out and we're, we're kind of lucky that like a lot of our customers, actually most of our customers are, are super clever and super responsive and really friendly and very great to interact with. Mm. And, um, there, the feedback we were getting was like, it's, it's just still not working. It's just, it's just not quite there. And they were showing kind of like, um, if you imagine like one of the problems was, um, uh, like um, gate shutter from cameras so like mm. when the gate is moving on a physical like film camera um, it causes a really really small amount of, of kind of like jitter, jitter. Yeah. yeah and uh, and it's really like it's nearly imperceptible except in our industry you obviously know that even the slightest thing is super perceptible and, and you, you can't you, you know it doesn't pass the bar so um uh, there was a, a colleague, Sean um, uh, Danishevsky, or um, in who was working at Method at the time. Um, he um, he said, "Here, come on over and 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 you know, let's work together on this." And so he brought me over, and um, he was like, "Sean is not shy about about telling you if something works or not." And he was like, immediately just bring bring me in. You know, he's like, "Do you want a cup of tea, coffee?" You know, the runner gets you like a nice cup of tea, and then uh, he's like, "Dan, that's crap." <laughs> Like that's 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 not working. I was like, "Come on!" But it's 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 way better. And he's like, "No, that's crap." And he he's convinced trying to convince me that it was crap. And so he he brought me into kind of a daily session. And that was actually my first like real daily session. And he like you know like daily he he put my work up on the the screen, and it was he was showing some um, uh, footage of uh, seven psychopaths. And um, it was of kind of like the graveyard scene where kind of um, kind of I think it's Woody Harrelson's head explodes, and uh, then, uh, but he was showing it on that, and he, he was saying like like this subpixel jitter that that you're trying to get rid of, um, like it, you can't really see it on the monitor, but he put it up on the 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 giant screen, uh, the the of the screening room, and it was really apparent. So it was like this sort of like you know it was actually a twelfth of a pixel. Like we're talking that small, so twelfth of a pixel, and then shown on a big screen. Then it obviously kind of was magnified, and he was showing the comp that he was trying to do, and it was trying, and it was it was really clear then that it was it was it just wasn't working for them, uh, and so I, I, it really needed that sort of you know in, intense environment where you had all these people who were like who's you know they 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 were trying to track this thing they couldn't go home until the shot was finished and you know you're the one keeping them from their families and everything and that's yeah. when it kind of like it really clicked it was like actually 
this is the accuracy we need to be working to. This mm. is the kind of the quality bar that we need to be uh, uh, like striving for. Can I ask, how long had you been at the foundry at this stage? Um, I think that might have been less than two years. Okay, yeah, keep going. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so so then it was, it was after that then that, yeah, I kind of had a good sense of what was needed in the industry. And that was like the real, like, you know, like kick up the ass to, you know, make sure that everything from then on was was at, at that bar. And and then you know, once you kind of were able to, to deal with that, and then also then it meant then every time you, you know, for my team, you know, I, I kind of always say that, like my, I constantly say the devil is in the detail. And this is actually goes back to one of my old bosses as well, I used to say it. And it's, you know, it, in our industry, it's exactly where like all of the improvements are made where that's this is where the this is this, this is yeah this is this is how we we earn our livings it's it's that detail another question i wanted to ask you and i'm afraid you might have answered it in that but was there, was there ever anything that was super difficult that maybe you didn't think you could get through and how did you get over it or how did you get around it oh um well so luckily in research there's about a hundred things that are super difficult that we never get over. And, you know, we, we just, you know, we, we could be banging our heads against the wall for a long time. So it, it's, um, yeah, I think we're not afraid to try something and have it not work. Okay. And, um, because you always learn something. Out sure. Of um, so like one of the, the kind of the, the interesting things that was on that our, our team did that um, I like, it, it was kind of always a kind of a bugbear that um, that we could never get anything out of it. And it was, it was my colleague, Ben Kent, uh, who also uh, received the Academy Award for that same motion estimation uh, work, and um, he, um, uh, so he was working on to see if there was an algorithm for fixing kind of the um, the focus blur, um, but oh, for yeah. say between like if you if you've shot in stereo, so people don't really shoot in, in true stereo really anymore, but uh, back in the days when they when they did, if one if one lens was slightly out of focus relative to the other, then one eye would be softer, and it was you know it was. Nearly, nearly always when I was always nearly softer, but um, you often wanted to kind of like correct it a little bit to kind of make it a bit sharper. And just throwing a sharpness filter on it just doesn't work. Like it's like focus blur is a really particular type of blur that you, you have to treat very carefully. And all sorts of kind of state of the art algorithms for removing blur just never really worked. And it was we, we, like we really tried to crack this and we just never got anywhere. But then thankfully... Um, we, we've been like investigating like machine learning and deep learning stuff lately, and uh, there's there's a really cool um, algorithm out there called SRN Deep Blur that we've been really poking hard with the stick, and uh, it's, it's this sort of magic thing where we just we just put in like that same shot that we were having trouble with, and it just worked. The blur was gone, and like kind of very very minor artifacts, but like certainly less than than the the blur that was there. So uh, so yeah, it's always like you know I'm happy I'm happy. If we if there's something there that we can't crack or, we, or we're struggling with because, you know, we generally have enough kind of knowledge to say, well, actually, we're going to park that. We, we can save it for later. Um, and, yeah, we, 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 we will try and come back to, to hard things. I mean, the, the obviously really hard thing that we, we like that nobody has like kind of materially made any um, significant advances on is uh, Roto. Um, and like, so we do have a machine learning funded project um, uh, with uh, DNEG and the University of Bath um, on trying to use machine learning to assist artists with that. But like, I think everybody th- thinks like machine learning is just going to crack that and, you know, it's going to put everybody out of business. And the more we look into it, the more we realize like Roto is really hard. Like good Roto is really, really hard. And um, I really don't see it kind of I'm going away in any time soon. Like, 
Yeah. So I think the, like, I think the, we might be able to kind of make kind of enhancements to the workflow, like using, you know, kind of machine learning to kind of assist with the kind of the, the kind of the, some of the pain points of it. Um, but ultimately good roto comes down to kind of the experience of the artist. And we're increasingly finding that machine learning just can't, it just isn't at that, um, that level yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's kind of true across a lot of the creative sort of, spectrum you yeah, know you, yeah. it can get you 80 percent there and it's great because it it does a lot of the the boring tasks yes exactly um, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 you so. mentioned uh dnec there is there a lot of give and take in the industry with yourself and kind of other partners or whatever do you kind of do you do a lot of work with people like that or yeah certainly um, with some partners more than others um there's um i suppose we're in a kind of a privileged position where a lot of folks like dnec they they use our software and rely heavily on it um, and I think at some stage we start to see that a lot of the problems that people have are, are common. So Roto, for example. So, um, even though we have this sort of funded project with, with Roto, there's a bunch of other companies who are just saying like, well, you know, we just want to pay less for Roto. Um, that's ultimately, we, we don't want to outsource it. We want our artists here to, to do more with it. We want, um, we, ideally if we, we want auto Roto, but I don't know, like I said, I, I don't think that's, that's feasible. But um, I hope I'm wrong about that, by the way. Like, I hope that like that, like Roto is just a solved problem and it just we can just get back to just the creative uh, challenges. Um, but um, but yeah, so um, a lot of companies, we, we work like very closely with a lot of companies. We do a lot of these sort of funded research projects and it's it's usually not really about any sort of like money. It's it's more just the kind of the the cadence of working together and getting into a routine of having meetings, of showing work, of um, sharing projects. Um, of also, and also kind of the, the IP agreements. So once you're kind of in one of these funded projects, the kind of the IP sharing is quite straightforward. So you're either in it or you're not. And uh, it makes it very easy for, for us to work with other companies and everybody knows where they are IP wise afterwards. Um, and then, yeah, we have, um, yeah, we, like even for, uh, I mean, we, we regularly thank like we're, like I said, in, in research, we're kind of lucky. Um, a lot of times like bug reports often turn into projects. So like something, somebody comes in and says, oh, you know, I wish Nuke could do this. We're like, yes, we also wish Nuke could do that. Let's do that thing. <laughs> Uh, and like, so we'll, we'll go off on tangents every now and again. And like, we're, we're lucky enough that we have a bit of freedom in, in, in doing these things. So, um, and, and yeah, we have like, um, we've got some great relationships with some, like with a lot of customers and, uh, you know, a lot of times like, you know, kind of, a things coming out of meetings will, or ideas that pop out of meetings, you know, we'll, we'll connect up again every kind of every now and again, or at SIGGRAPH and things and like, you know, bounce ideas back and forth. And then a funded project pops out and then we're, you know, we're collaborating and working together for a while, sharing footage. And, uh, and then we do a thing and then we part ways for a while and, and then the next one starts up. So, so yeah, there's, yeah, we're, I think we're, I think we're lucky that, like I said, we're in a, a privileged position where, um, both, you know, co- you know, companies like working with us. Um, but also that we, you know, we work in a cool industry. Yes. Like we're, I, I feel very lucky to like, you know, I like talking to customers, you know, it's, it's never about like boring things like spreadsheets or databases. I mean, sometimes they are, but actually their databases are very cool. <laughs> I don't know if you can talk about this, but is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you're excited about? Yes. Uh, I'm excited about everything uh, we're working about at the moment. It's, um, we're in a really, really kind of nice time. Um, so like I said, like a machine learning is kind of like taken off in a good way. And we're, it's nice that we're kind of, uh, where I see it is, is we're kind of, uh, maybe at the apex of the hype cycle of it, and now it's 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 actually time for machine learning to start paying dividends, 
And we're start, starting to figure out, like, how do you just get machine learning into the hands of artists and, and make it make sense? So, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's time for machine learning to earn its keep. And we're, we're, like, we're trying to figure out what's the angle uh, if, of how, to, how you'd use it. And so rather than just the kind of the, um, you know, you put something, you throw an image in, you get some magic image out, which is, which is cool, it's fantastic, and you get, you get something interesting. Um, the, like that's nice, but it doesn't it doesn't address the kind of the the, the kind of the, the the hard challenges that that artists have, and it doesn't address it's not a, it's not a general solution for all problems. It, you ha- it has to be very specific. So we're trying to figure out what like how we can set up machine learning in a way that say artists at their desks can put in data, and for even for like their their studio or even just for their their own shot. Like say, so, you know. Um, Artists will often work on shots for a really, really long time, and they get to know like nearly each pixel by name. Yes. So it would make sense for that for that to be able to say, well, actually, here's a you know here's a, a machine learning network that does a thing. Um, I want to just train this network, and I want it to just help me solve my specific problem on this shot. So if it, so, if, say for Roto, for example, um, you might not need to solve the whole Roto problem. Like you don't want to have, you don't necessarily need to solve the world. You just want to solve it for that one shot. You want, you want to, you want to solve it so that you can get home to your family quicker. That's that's the way I kind of see it. So even if it shaves off, you know, ten percent of the the, the workload, uh, and ten percent is probably reasonable for for some of these tasks. That's that's useful. Uh, other things like um, removing blur, like these are things that like previously were never possible. And suddenly machine learning has opened up these sort of avenues of things that just you just didn't exist. So um, a friend, the, the same friend, he shot a film uh, called uh, Killer Weekend, which is on Now TV. I'm going to, that's my shameless plug for this. Um, and, um, uh, but you'll, you'll notice that one of the shots is slightly blurry. I'm not going to tell you which one, you're going to have to see it. Um, but um, it, it's it's slightly blurry. And he was saying that he, he was on the, on the fence about throwing the shot out, but he needed the shot. And so he ended up having to use the shot in the, in the film. And he said that this is actually like from the, the films that he's worked on, this is relatively common where you get a really good performance like from the actors. And ultimately, everything has to be about the story. So it doesn't matter what the pixels are doing, but like you, you always need to have the, uh, like the, the story. Um, and you know if the if the pixels are like are not quite there but like the story and the 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 performance is the the one that you want then you have to go with that and so if there's no way of fixing it then you know yeah like i said yeah, you you got to go with it but now if you have a way to magically correct this thing even if it's not even if it's to get it maybe 80% of the way there like yeah. you said sometimes 80% is enough now like i know like the devil is in the detail and ideally you want, like you know we typically operate in like kind of 97.6% kind of there easily there and for film it's even higher and um but for for something that you 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 had to throw away before 80% is pretty good yeah we'll take a that. big improvement yeah so that's like machine learning that's that's where we think the interesting stuff is is there uh, and i'm hoping that like in the next few months we're going to have be able to sh- kind of share some of these ideas and actually share some of the code as well um yeah so we also uh, one of the things um um like as i said to you kind of before this podcast started is, is like um we're kind of with our research we're trying to be quite more more open about things mm-hmm. so uh we recently released we released the um the kind of the machine learning framework that we use for doing our experiments so if you go on github and search foundry there's a project called the ml server 
And it's kind of our sort of test bed for, yeah, like where we, how we set up our machine learning experiments and then importantly to connect them to, to Nuke. So when we do any experiments, this is the kind of the thing that we use to rapidly test the, the algorithms in context of, in Nuke. So it's, it's the, it's kind of a, it's, it's not for the faint hearted, but it's, um, yeah, we found it really valuable for just prototyping stuff and seeing, does this work on a shot? Does this work on a on a, on a frame? Does this work on wow uh, on geometry as well? I think somebody re- submitted a pull request to add in geometry where it automatically fit a three D mesh to an image, like three D mesh of a face to an image. So, so yeah, so that's kind of cool. Um, and then the other stuff that um, we're uh, I'm, other stuff I'm super interested in is uh, light fields. So I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that. So um, so light. Um, there's, a, there's been a sort of a, a kind of a research area. Uh, it's called light fields, but it's um, it's basically the, um, like imagine a camera with a lens captures light coming in and, you know, captures a certain volume of light coming in in a certain direction. Um, other the previous times you've probably seen kind of setups where there's like a principal camera and then a bunch of witness cameras. And then the idea being that you can you know, use those witness cameras to, you know, enhance what you're doing or like give you more context on the shot. Um, I know it's used a lot for rotomation. So if you're lining up a a 3D geometry with a a 2D image, getting kind of better context, um, still not not many kind of automated solutions for that. Um, But the idea for for that then is like, imagine if instead of just having a few cameras, you have uh, like a few cameras, uh, like you're, you're capturing more of the light, kind of more Imagine like more more photons, more physics coming into in, into the sensing equipment. Imagine if you had you know an infinite number of cameras, then you're you're capturing kind of light like the full scene, the full volume of light. And if you imagine light fields, um, the way my my, my boss and founder of, of Vendor Ed sort of describes it is, um, it's sort of a, imagine you've got a kind of a, a window frame. So and imagine you're looking through that window frame. And everything you see there is coming through that frame uh, is basically, the, you know, the, the photons have done their thing. They've come from light sources and they've bounced around and coming through that frame and then into your eyes. And imagine like you can move your head around, keeping the frame still. And, you know, you can see kind of you can get it some some sense of parallax. You can sense sense of objects and things. And um, but essentially, essentially what you're doing is like, you know, the, the volume of light is still coming. is still the same. Just where you're sensing it is, is different. And Lightfields is trying to sort of replicate that. It's like it's like capturing both the um, the the kind of uh, a wider uh, volume of, of of light of photons, and the the idea for that is well, first off, um, the idea is you could use it for um, reconstructing three D objects because you have you have a sense of world that the lights coming in, and you've you've got you know uh, imagine in this window frame, imagine you can move your head around, and you have a sense of parallax. So light fields have already been sort of explored as sort of a way of capturing live action for uh, VR or AR. And it's a really nice kind of um, framework for, for doing that. But what we're really interested in is how do you move beyond the VR and AR for that? So how many cameras would you need? And could you, um, you know, to, uh, you know, how many cameras could you, could you, could you bring to set for example and then once you're doing that how, like once you capture all that light field or the, like what yeah what can you do with it so first thing is sort of you can get like depth maps mm-hmm. and then once you get depth maps you can help that helps with keying helps with roto um helps with um grading um you've also because you've got kind of more more light uh, depending on how you sense it you get a kind of much wider dynamic range um, so you can help with you know kind of when uh, kind of uh, values like are, are blown out or or too dark. Um, what else can you do? Um, 
a whole bunch, whole bunch of kind of other things. Oh, uh, so one, yeah. Once you have the kind of depth, and you also have uh, because of the parallax, you also can kind of see behind objects a little bit. So even if you had just like a principal camera pointing forwards, you still have some information of what's behind it. So you can start depending on where your cameras are, you can start kind of removing objects or editing objects in the scene. So we're kind of in the kind of exploratory phase of that. And there's, there's a bunch of people doing really cool stuff with this. So uh, Google have already done it. Like Paul Deb- Debevac's lab has done some nice stuff in this. Um, there's like University of Saarland has uh, made these kind of like eight by eight camera arrays. Um, and it's all really cool, uh, except for the data rates. The data rates are insane. There's like for that eight, for an eight by eight camera array of just HD images, uh, it's about nine gig raw a second. And it's so it's completely impractical at the moment. So we're trying to figure out what would make sense from a, a post-production point of view. Yeah. So what could we do to, um, yeah, kind of make that kind of more accessible? And, and and then once we have that, what tools can we make for it to kind of, uh, yeah, make it make it fun? And of course, there's like there's so many kind of hard problems with that. That's a, that's a really it's a really nascent research area, and um, that's super exciting. Um, and possibly kind of could change how production works. So imagine like you, you still have your principal camera. The director uh, behaves exactly as the way the director is. The director of photography behaves the, the same way that he does. But imagine then once he's, you've shot everything on set, imagine you didn't like something. You, you know, you still have this extra information. So you could wiggle the, the principal camera around and get a new viewpoint. So, uh, so uh, for uh, uh, oh yeah, move the camera around, but um, you can also relens things as well. So if you didn't like the lens that you that was uh, you shot with, you can synthesize a lens because you have you you know how the the light transport happened uh, going in. So you can just fake a lens. And so if you wanted a lens that had more character or you wanted like true optical flares, you can just you can just make it up. You can just synthesize it. So. So that's really nice. So it gives you this sort of like safety after the fact of shooting. And like the, the one thing that I, I really got me was like there was um that the sold me on this idea. It was um um do you remember do you remember game do you, do you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what kind of I hope I hope everybody listening, I'm gonna presume everybody listening has, has has seen it. So there's a spoiler here. Hey, Future Pierce here. If you haven't seen the last season of Game of Thrones and you'd like to watch it spoiler free, you can just jump ahead one minute and fifteen seconds and you should be safe and sound for the rest of the episode. Back to the podcast. So there's a spoiler here. Um, so when Arya killed the Night King, do you remember she kind of like she got caught and he, she was you know he was being held up by the throat, and then she dropped the the knife uh, in one hand to the other and then stabbed him. Well, in the documentary of like of them making that, they had to shoot that scene so many times, like so many shots of Arya doing that, and it was freezing, and like everybody looked miserable. And so once you're doing that, you're just like performances are suffering because you're you're having to do this thing 30 times. And it's there's rigging, there's like um, kind of the, uh, you know, the, the things that kind of hoist actors up and um, move them along. And and they're trying to kind of get zoom in really on this, like the Night King and Arya were, were very close together. So there wasn't really much room to actually see the knife dropping. So they had to shoot that a lot and, and statically to um, to make sure they capture that. You know, imagine if you had you shot it you shot it once or or twice or even five times, which is still six times fewer than they they did. And you have all these extra kind of cameras around, and they're capturing all this extra information. So imagine like you shoot it once, and if you did if you you know you didn't quite get the camera move that you wanted, you can just nudge it. You can just nudge that camera after the fact. And uh, so I, I think anyways, as well as sort of safety, it kind of enables kind of better kind of creativity. 
And I think this is kind of um, like, for me anyway, I'm, I'm super excited as, uh, of this as a kind of the next enabling technology for, for film production. Yeah, because so. it sounds like even just putting 3D assets into an environment like that, if you've already got like most of your environment, it'll be much easier to put them in. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. So as well as, yeah, because as well as having the cameras there, you have like, um, you know, any sort of movement in your parallax, you get camera tracks. And so, you know, you know your world. And uh, yeah, you have, uh, yeah, so any sort of CG integration happens better. You also have for the integration. So if anybody's, you know, had, you know, had to do integration where you've, you've got, you've got your, your, your key, you've got your, your, your plate, your CG object, and you want to try and layer them. And depending on the kind of the background objects and things like that, like you get fringing on the sides. Mm-hmm. So this will help with that because you, again, you, you know more about the light transport and you can, and now all of these algorithms all have to be written. So there's like, it's going to keep my team super busy for the next like 10 years. But, um, yeah, it's a, but like I said, this is, this is what I think could be the kind of the thing that pushes. A huge game changer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and like the hardware wise, kind of what we're looking at, it's not crazy expensive. So, you know, you, like you still shoot with your same principal camera. So like, you know, you're not changing the workflow of how productions are made. You know, you're, you're only, sort of augmenting it and you only need to augment it with as much sort of gear as you wanted. So if you needed like super safety and you know, you're, you, you know, you're, you're filming a car chase and the car's going to explode and you know, the, the cost of the, that shot is, you know, dwarfs the budget for, you know, say 20 cameras, you could just buy those 20 cameras and, and, and use them for that one shot. And then you, you at least know that you have this sort of buffer to work with then after the fact. Yeah. That's crazy. There's just so many possibilities with that with that rig because you essentially have your whole set then, don't you? You have everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've actually just answered the question I was going to ask you about where do you think the future or what do you think is is coming down the road for us? Is yeah, is there yeah. any other things that you're excited about that are, you're working on in the boundary? Well, so they so so that so I, I should caveat everything that we're like this is only kind of our 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 very limited view of the future. I think. Sure. Um, um, I, I think one of your previous guests had said about like looking to the future and um, he said that, you know, really you can only kind of look kind of six months to a year or a very kind of short time frame. Yes. And like I, I, I'd I agree to that, agree with that somewhat. Um, we keep tabs in kind of a few different technologies. Um, light fields are definitely one that's are super interesting. Um, but the other one, and this is kind of a bit more, uh, it, it's a bit more pedestrian, but it, it's, it's one of my favorite research projects. And it's actually... Um, uh, so we're doing this, the, we have a research project called EIST, so E-I-S-T, and it stands for, uh, what is it, Enabling Interactive Storytelling. And it's with the BBC, and the BBC um, have done this this cool thing where, like, the, their idea, basically the problem it's trying to solve is that um, uh, lots of things um, take too long, and we don't have time for anything anymore. So their example was cooking. So, you know, you want to learn how to cook something or, or get the instructions for, for how to cook something. And they said then, well, you know, you could proceed in a kind of a linear fashion and you just watch the video and you cook the thing. But but imagine you only want, you want to cook that thing in half the time or you cook, cook things out of sequence. So maybe you, you like start the, the oven sooner or you, you fry the mushrooms before the onions or something like that. And their idea was that, and, uh, that, you know, you have these sort of jump points where you can kind of interactively say, well, I've done that bit. So I'm going to, you know, what's the next thing I need to do or how can I parallelize the things that I'm doing? And um, they actually have an interactive thing for cooking, like a demo on their website for cooking. So it's really worth a look if just for um, kind of to, to get an idea of it. Now, 
our take in this was um, essentially that that game engines are becoming really like important, and that so they're they're, they're really cool, and um, for lots of different reasons. But um, the challenge with game engines is you need programmers, and it changes the demands of the industry. And so what we were looking at was could we create a kind of a layer within the game engines um, that allowed sort of or kind of a define a kind of um, um, a way of importing assets and so like objects, animations, textures. And lay them out in a sort of um, a node graph, like in a way that allowed you this story to kind of proceed in kind of a, a nonlinear way. So um, you could define, well, this is like, here's an object, here's a person, he walks towards the door. Um, he could either stand at the door or open the door or turn around. And based on those decisions, then you get different animations, different, exactly. It's kind of like choose your own adventure kind of book. And the idea being that we would write this sort of layer um, that, that does this thing. And uh, then you know we would then deploy it to a game engine so it meant that you weren't you weren't waiting for a for a game developer to write the thing that did all the logic for all that stuff it was it was all just there and um the so that's so we we kind of worked on that we kind of made like made some inroads in that but in doing that we started learning about usd so i don't know if, have, if you've heard of usd i'm not familiar with it okay so usd is the, it's it's called um um universal scene description descriptor uh, and it's for, it's from pixar so it's uh this like open source library and you might have heard about like usd has been kind of like uh like it's like a kind of a it's often described as a, a file format. So a lot of like things you get, like you can bake out stuff to USD. You can um, uh, you can import to USD, um, and like it's based on sort of like a, it. It has kind of components of Alembic. So yes. Um, so like Alembic mo- models can be imported to it, but it also defines um, textures and animations and scenes and stages. And the really cool thing about it, though. Uh, is that so as we've been learning about it more and more customers have have talked to us and said well actually you know like we we, we want to use it this is really cool and um we're starting to see that it's not actually a file format the more you kind of get into it it's not a file format it's a way of describing your pipeline so the idea being that everybody who uses this usd file and you could have a file for say one usd file per shot could be one usd file per show so for example pixar would use one usd file per per show and other other folks would then have you know could do it on a shot by shot basis but the idea being that it it provides the sort of entry points for where you save your data where you like how you version your data um, how you can create different instances of your data. So, say if you were, if you're interested in lighting, then you would only be interacting with that one small part of the USD file, and you can be doing that while somebody else is working on a different part of it. Wow. Yeah. So it's so it's it, for us anyway as a research project. It's been super interesting because we've been able to um, attack it from a kind of a, a product agnostic way. Like eventually, the kind of like our USD knowledge will kind of filter back into Foundry products, and I think we've like I think Katana might have it already. Uh, Nuke has uh, some alpha plugins of of it. Um, but we're all, yeah we're we're kind of really keen to see kind of um, yeah like how USD fits in with everybody's pipelines and like. Um, and yeah, the more we learn about it, the more we sort of realize that this is the thing that sort of um, basically provides the sort of continuity of decision across the post-production pipeline. So from even from uh, pre-production to previs, like you start baking, like creating your assets and your animations, they can be carried like providing you, you, you providing you keep that same file. You can carry that the, you, like those assets all the way down post the, the entire post pipeline. And you can just pick in like drop in. You know, modify, pick out a bit, modify your thing, uh, save it back down, 
uh, to like to a separate section if you want to create separate different like um, variants of something. So if you wanted to have say like a red cup and a blue cup, um, you can create those variants in the like in the USD files. So and then anybody down like further down the pipeline can adjust those variants and pick off the bits that they need. So it means then that you're kind of you're helping parallelize the pipeline while also ensuring that um, each department can kind of get access to both the bits that they need. But also we're seeing it's allowing stages of the pipeline look further up and down the stream. So if somebody is, say, lighting something or doing look dev on something, they might be able to see some animation that's come in. So if somebody is to fix the animation from earlier on um, and there's like the uh, the look dev artist is doing the turntable test. The animation might might already be there, and so they can I think just apply the animation to the turntable, and so it's it's um, we're seeing all these like new kind of ideas called like um, I think they're called, they're called like animviz, and or is that animviz? Might not be animviz, might be animviz, but it's 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 uh, like these kind of new terms for for these um, processes in the pipeline that didn't exist before because you just didn't have access to those things. The other really cool thing about USD is uh, what, what's called Hydra. And so Hydra is sort of um, a way of specifying how a renderer should receive data and render the pixels. And it's really closely tied to USD. So the idea being that you have your USD file in your stage, your scene, your objects, materials, animation, textures, lights, and then the Hydra, you then throw it into Hydra and then you ask Hydra to render it. And then Hydra will look at these, what's called Hydra delegates on your on your computer. And these delegates could be uh, Renderman, they could be Arnold, uh, V-Ray, uh, they could be uh, AMD have their own ProRender one. I think NVIDIA are uh, supposed to release their own one. And the idea being then that all your renders should be, uh, you can choose any sort of render that you want to, to produce your pixels. And it, again, it's about sort of like harmonizing kind of formats. So similar to sort of open source and standards, uh, recognizing that we all share the same problems. Uh, it's about sort of making sure that you're, 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 as well as if USD is about continuity of decisions down a pipeline, then Hydra is about sort of continuity of visualization. So making sure that you're, you know, if you've, if you've made something uh, in, uh, if you've made objects and textures in one package, that they can, they look the same in the various renders. At least close enough. It, I think you'll still get like lots of competition between renders, which is great. Um, but interestingly, you'll also see people like NVIDIA and AMD offering their own renderers and like so NVIDIA's like uh, like ray tracing engine to, um, you know, to to sort of for free. So in, in an effort to kind of get you to get by NVIDIA cards. So it, it kind of all makes sense. But it means then for, you know, if you're if you just want to do some look dev and do some like kind of really fast iterations on, on something and you already have everything in USD, uh, you can send it very quickly to um to Hydra to get it rendered either real time, so for the real time ray tracing, or PR man if you've got some 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 cycles to spare, and um, yeah, it's a it's yeah it's a it's a really really nice technology, and we're we're kind of looking into that a lot, um, particularly it's at um so we've also written our own uh, our own Hydra delegate, um, which we call like used to be called the, the Gonzo viewer, um, which is after the you know, the Muppet. Yes. Um, and so we've been kind of like experimenting with with that ourselves. And so the, the nice thing about Hydra as well is that it's uh, it's not just for rendering, but it's about like kind of viewports. Yeah. So um, so other other companies um, have also written their own like Hydra delegates for how you interact with um, uh, you know with with software. So the idea could be in in future where Nuke Katana, um, you know, you could have 
the same viewport across all of them. We might not even be the ones who write the viewport. It could be somebody else. It could be, um, you know, uh, Dean Egg or Wada could have their own hydrodelegates and viewport uh, delegates. And then across their own internal software, then everything looks and feels the same. So, so again, it's about like um, if you're looking to strive for efficiencies, kind of making sure that all the, your keyboard shortcuts, all your mappings, all your how you look and, in, and interact with software, if you could harmonize that, then you make some serious improvements in efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. We're, like, we're keeping a really close eye on this. I, mean, I should say that we're not, the, um, we're not spearheading any sort of USD stuff. This is like, it is very open. It's, um, there's a USD mailing list, which is pretty active. Um, uh, Pixar are the, kind of the main sort of contributors to all this, but then there's a lot of companies feeding in. Uh, a lot of animation companies. Uh, animation seems to be picking this up in a big way. Uh, so DreamWorks, for example, do a lot of stuff in USD. Um, and I think um, I think you were mentioning there that was it uh, Boulder do, do yes, a lot of stuff um, as well. Yes, Boulder working uh, on it as well. Yeah, it, it, you mentioned Git earlier. Is there anywhere like a centralized location that people could kind of get uh, tutorials on it, or you know, kind of things to play around with outside of Git? Or yeah, so um, uh, I mean, USD. Oh, sorry, not USD. Um, Pixar have a good USD. Uh, like website, like you, like information, like uh, reference uh, material on their website. The mailing list is probably the, the best place, um, but it's it can be pretty overwhelming. Um, unfortunately, like USD is still pretty young, and it, uh, like I said, it's um, it it did take sort of you know two or three of our research engineers to spend oh, well over a year to just kind of get get their hands dirty with it, and. Uh, so it's not the friendliest thing to, to get into if you want to understand the depths of it. Um, but we are starting to see kind of, I mean, if you want to, to tinker with, with it yourself, there's lots of like, there are YouTube vid- uh, videos on, say, if you want to figure out how it works with Maya or Katana. Um, and the uh, I suppose that one of the challenges at the moment is that there aren't very many USD resources. Um, so if you wanted mater- like 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 models or a variety of models, I mean, th- there are some things out there. Uh, and a lot of actually, um, a lot of Apple's, um, like Apple's AR and VR stuff is all so- stored as USD models. So if you do your, you've ever seen like, if you, if you search like AR Hedgehog on Apple, um, the, those models that you see there are all USD files. Um, so you, you were starting to see that that was really interesting when we started seeing that actually Apple are adopting it as their, as their format. It sounds a bit magic, to be honest. Is there yeah. any downsides to it? Uh, it's super complicated. Oh. It's like we, you know, we had to have a full research project with three people working on it to kind of <laughs> really, kind of really dig deep in it. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's the kind of the, the the current pitfall of it is that anybody adopting it needs like a lot of like some some good pipeline engineers um, and some good understanding and. At the moment, like not all DCC packages support it. I mean, certainly ours don't uh, to a high, uh, the degree that it, they, they all should. Um, but then, yeah, so, so that, that's the downside. But I mean, the, uh, a really nice upside of it, and, and again, if anybody's uh, playing along at home, is that um, NVIDIA have gotten really interested in this. And they've uh, written this thing called Omniverse, which is like, it takes USD. They, they saw like the... the they saw a really clever kind of opening in the in the, the market. They saw USD and said, "We're going to take that, and we're going to we're going to repackage the USD libraries so that any DCC client that that's using it um, can operate work on on their thing, and any other DCC client, like say in the same network, um, can see their results. So it's like a Google Docs of 
of, of your you know of your studio Whoa. and yeah so like you should check out the demos for it it's, they're really nice and they're um but the, the i mean it depends on the kind of the, the pipeline that you have so like a lot of times pipelines once you get big enough they have to be locked um but the nice thing though for this is like if you're iterating something you know with your buddy and you're trying to get something right and you know one of you can be working on say like you know texturing that kind of the, the face and like skin others can be working on kind of like eyes um and you know you can start seeing kind of the the changes uh, being reflected as they're happening as they're happening yeah 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 that is crazy yeah. and this is like um like like i suppose this is kind of um like uh, one of the, the uh, some of the trends that we see kind of in the wider industry is that um uh, basically like there's two kind of things that people really want uh it's um it, like working at scale and efficiency and these are the kind of the things that um that, that they're they're probably the hardest things to do but they're kind of the most important so um i think uh, kind of a, some of your previous guests had mentioned about kind of talent and getting talent and uh yeah, talent is like like it's a it's a it's a scarce resource at the moment across all of the industries in every in every sector, and uh, what like um, I can't say the name of of the the studio, um, but imagine a kind of very very global uh, large large studio, and they reckon anyway their thesis is that um, there is a fixed number of artists in the world at any given time, and you cannot change that, and. Ideally, you would like to, you can kind of, uh, you know, invest more in education, but like today you cannot change that. So if you want to get that talent, you have to, and you know, you can either throw more money at them, you can kind of locate to kind of better places, you can have better jobs. But a lot of those times, those things are are fixed. Mm. So if the demands for both, for both film, for TV shows, for games is, is growing and growing and kind of our quality expectations are getting higher and higher. There's, like you want to be able to the only thing that you can do is make the, the time that you have with the artist uh you know more useful so you want to get the kind of the, the most out of them you and this kind of all links back into like getting to create being creative faster and so the, the whole thing about like our research team is like getting to removing the drudge work any any pain points get rid of that so that you can just get to doing the, the artistic creative stuff faster it's also why i don't think machine learning is going to put people out of jobs because it's like it's still this creative thing is the is the thing that everybody wants and so that so the question is then how do you do that how do you scale up how do you make things more efficient is it like is it artist tools is it education um we don't really have kind of a, a huge huge answer on this but um usd certainly helps with a lot of the the pipeline pain in that it simplifies kind of the the um you know the uh, yeah a lot of like how like yeah like how different um departments work and collaborate with each other so either in a very local way like the the omniverse way that i mentioned or in just a you know removing sort of pipeline friction of having needing to have senior pipeline engineers to support kind of custom or proprietary uh, as you move through softwares or whatever it is yeah 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 so if everybody if everybody just sticks to usd then it's in theory everybody you know you your pipeline is defined and it just works and then the, I suppose the, the second trend then is then, um, so continuing, well, kind of a variant of the efficiency thing is um, everybody wants to work at what, what they call the speed of thought. So 
you want to, if you have a thought, you want to be able to iterate on it quickly. And we're really seeing this with like animation com- uh, studios where they want to be able to take their storyboards and then really like, like live, like on an, on an iPad, on, uh, on, on their, their Wacom, on, on anything on the train, on the bus, be able to quickly kind of like draw something, iterate, like send it out, get feedback, draw it on again, be able to take during dailies, be able to take something back, scribble on it, fix it and send it back out. So it's all about sort of the, yeah, like I said, like rapid iterations, um, recognizing that like not everything has to be preserved. So there's a stri- there's a kind of a, a drive towards making everything procedural. Um, so things like uh, like Mari or Substance Painter, um, uh, Nuke, um, Katana, like all very kind of like procedural kind of software Houdini. Um, but then at the pre-production stage, a lot of stuff is thrown away, like like well over kind of ninety percent of stuff is just thrown away because you just want to do a thing, iterate on it, and get to the final version. And you don't care about everything else. Like you know, you might keep some of the things, notes or ideas for later if you're if you're stuck. But actually, for that stage, you want to just you you want to be unencumbered, and uh, and so that's the that's the other that's sort of big trend that we're seeing, and things like the the omniverse again are kind of help address that. Uh, you know, in that you can quickly kind of iterate on ideas and. It doesn't need to be the final thing. And, yeah, yeah. And, and it just it gets out of your way, is it? It just were? gets out of your way. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all, yeah. Can you talk to us about some of the other things that are coming down the road? Yeah, so so another really interesting trend in the, the in- industry is uh, open source. So again, recognizing that lots of companies share the same problems. You're seeing kind of uh, companies banding together and working on... Um, yeah, sharing the same same problems. So there's, there's the Academy Software Foundation um, has got together and taken a bunch of open source projects under its wing. So OpenEXOR would be a good one. Um, I think they just released OpenQ, and there's a I think there's a bunch of other ones. But they're ones where they're saying like we're going they're they're adopting these projects. Like they're in a they're in a state where they're valuable to the the, the entire uh, industry, and they want to make sure that they're maintained and you know they're they're they're, they're healthy and they become kind of a standard exactly the yeah 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 so so we're starting to see that there there, there is a kind of a, a drive towards towards openness and again it's it's one of, it, it's nice as well from a uh, from an ip issue as well if you say like you know there's a push a lot of companies don't want to maintain their own tools hmm. and so by open sourcing it you kind of expose it and it, it kind of also kind of helps free kind of collaboration and kind of sharing of ideas um, so there's, uh, I mean, obviously there's a lot of proprietary uh, software, which is amazing. And not everything's going to be open sourced, but we are starting to see that the, the sort of shift and we're, we're trying to do the same thing. So like I said earlier with the uh, RML server at work, uh, it's sort of our, our research team's um, first foray into um, getting something out there. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I'm, I'm actually out of questions now, except uh, I was going to ask you for a book recommendation, but I'm not sure if that's a, <laughs> a book recommendation. Um, I think that the last one that I really thoroughly enjoyed was uh, Sapiens. Oh, yeah. I meant yeah. to pick that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that was the one where it really stuck with me throughout the, the you know, the, the weeks and yeah, I love coming. Like, I mean, my wife was sick of it by the time. Like, every time I come home, I'm like, guess what? Human hunter gatherers, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. All right, well, I tell you what, we'll we'll leave it there. But um, thanks so much. I really enjoyed chatting to you. It was great to have you on. So it was. Oh, thanks, Millie, for having me. Like, like I said, I'm like a big fan. And um, yeah, I mean, I um, there's been some like notable like favorites, but I really loved. Um, so like Pete McNally had um, yes. Yeah, like Pete and um, the guys from Boulders, Brian and uh, Michael, and um, they like uh, 
yeah, like, like I, I chatted with Pete before about the photogrammetry stuff. So like um, uh, photogrammetry is like one of my kind of uh, kind of pa- passion areas. It links into kind of like tracking and understanding the world and like the light field stuff that I was yeah. saying before. And then just seeing Pete's work like um, um, it's like I'm, oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, like taking and, and that's exactly the kind of stuff where like Pete was um, like his workflow of going through lots of different packages to get the right answer. Mm-hmm. Like it's um yeah, oh, it's amazing. It's uh, and like seeing his work is, is and he fantastic. keeps turning it out as well. He just I keeps know, yeah, it yeah, yeah. Stuff. It's great to see. Yeah, really exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 great. Like he's like he's he really challenges himself as well. Like mm. like you don't see it kind of anything easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. where can people find more about you? Um, I suppose LinkedIn is probably the best place for for myself. Like I'm not hugely active on social media. Okay. Um, also email as well. So like always happy to hear. Like I said, uh, bug reports as well. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, feel free to send plenty of them in. Um, cool. Uh, yeah, email address dan.ring at founder.com. Perfect. Um, and we'll put that in the in the description as well. Okay. Cool. Well, Thanks thank you very much. much. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to the 3D Meetup podcast. If you have any suggestions for how we can improve the podcast or the meetup, we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch at 3dmeetupdublin at gmail.com. If you haven't already, join us on meetup.com to stay up to date about our upcoming events. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating us on iTunes. And if you want to help us keep the lights on, please support us on buymeacoffee.com. I hope you enjoy the show, and I'll see you at the next meetup.